today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. A lot of talk about what's going to happen uh, going forward with COVID-19. You know, we're trying to balance safety here, but at the same time, we're concerned about the economy, uh, the number of people that have lost jobs. And I know that those numbers are starting to look a little bit better than they were a couple of months ago. Uh, but it, it's not going to be the same as it was before. Let's face it, because of social distancing and some businesses that have gone out of business uh, during the shutdown, uh, there are people that are not going to be able to find employment, which is one of the reasons why, of course, uh, the government has set up a number of assistance programs, uh, some for landlords, some for tenants, uh, to try to help out with rents. That's a good idea. Uh, but the one that's getting the most attention, of course, is the SER benefit, which is essentially the income top-up uh, that the instituted uh, at the beginning, and uh, not without controversy, of course. As you may recall, the, the, the mantra from the government back in those early days was, look at, uh, just ask for it and you'll get it. And we'll sift through this later on and find out if there's somebody who's getting it who shouldn't, etc., etc., etc. And it, it's not quite worked out that way because of the number of people that probably don't need it and are applying for it and getting it anyway. I, I'd like to think that uh, the system will catch up with those folks at some point, obviously, when Revenue Canada starts looking at people's incomes from this. But uh, there's always going to be people that are going to try to scam the system. No matter what it is, uh, it happens. And, and that's unfortunate that people would think to do that because there are people that need it a lot more than some other people in this situation. And, and, you know, we can sit here and have the debate and the discussion about what's going to be happening and, you know, should there be a means test and all this sort of stuff. And uh, that's that's something that our politicians are going to have to decide on sooner than later, I suppose. And I'm sure that discussion is probably going to be happening, uh, well, I would think in the next three weeks when Parliament resumes in, in the third week of September. Uh, the SER benefit is probably going to be part of that discussion because some of the recommendations, the last set of recommendations that the Prime Minister talked about a few days ago are actually going to need uh, parliamentary approval. Uh, so that's when the debate will happen. But what happens after that? What happens after the basic income project, the SER benefit runs out? What's going to happen with those people, and what kind of assistance are they going to offer? Now, the government's proposal at this stage is to roll that into the EI program, which I don't think is really a smart idea. There's a lot of concerns and too many pitfalls there. But what is being suggested now in some circles, and I think it's worthy of discussion, is do you roll a SERB program into a basic income program? Yeah, we tried to do that in Ontario. Remember, a couple of years ago, the previous government did that on the pilot project, and Hamilton was one of the pilots. And uh, the feedback that we got was that it was working, that there weren't any hard and fast numbers, but anecdotally we talked to a number of people that were on that program, and uh, there's there some pretty positive results. Of course, as soon as the Ford government got elected, they killed the program, uh, saying that uh, that there was no positive proof about that. Well, of course there wasn't. They didn't last for it. That's why. But anyway, uh, the uh, Women's Foundation, Canadian Women's Foundation, are advocating for uh, rolling this into a basic income project. Andrea Guraj, Gunraj, rather, I'm sorry, Andrea, is the Vice President of Public Engagement for the Canadian Women's Foundation and joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Andrea, thank you so much for the time. I'm glad you could be with us today. Oh, thanks for having me. This is not new to an awful lot of our listeners uh, in this area because we've, uh, as you know, provincially, we've tried a program like this. Uh, other jurisdictions uh, across North America and in Europe, for that matter, have tried this, and uh, and it seems to work. Uh, is this an idea whose time has finally come? Well, it's really interesting. Um, as you said, it's not a new idea, even you know around the world. I think it's been tried in more than one jurisdiction, and nobody has it right now um, as a, a true running program. But the pilots that have been happening and the tests that have been happening um, have really had some really positive results, as you said. Um, so I do think that it's really important for us to look at doing things differently now, especially that the pandemic has really changed the way our world works and also has shown that there are cracks in the way the system is. 
So I think it's been uh, something that's been on our minds at the Canadian Women's Foundation as something to really take seriously now. I think um, it's been floating around as an idea, but now's the time for us to really change the way that we're doing things and particularly think about the gendered impact. Um, and for us, we think this is a really worthy thing to try out and um, take seriously in the next coming months as we're going to see that uh, economic issues will continue to be a problem for women in particular, but not only. It's, you mentioned it's not a new idea. The government, in, in a fashion, is already doing this. I mean, there's a guaranteed income supplement for, for seniors uh, that, that are, are finding themselves in a precarious financial position, and we've been doing that for years, and we seem to be okay with that. Uh, and it, it's a good program, and I hope it continues. Uh, but the reality here is that this, there's a lot of people that are below the age of retirement uh, that are still in dire straits and are going to be for quite some time because of what happened with COVID. Yeah, I, I think this is a really good point that you're making. In some way, shape, and force, we've seen that. And um, I think what is really interesting to me is the fact that to have a big portion of a population living in poverty or at risk of poverty is actually really expensive to maintain. Um, poverty is oddly expensive. And you can see beyond the human toll, it just doesn't make any sense when you have the ability to change the way that you do things and rework the, the money and the supports, um, that you can find other alternatives. But you do have to think outside the box. I think one of the things that we've seen is folks being concerned that perhaps it's a disincentive um, to work. I've, I've heard that more than once. Um, but, you know, again, you've got to look back at the evidence and not make assumptions and see that the pilot projects have been good and we haven't been seeing this disincentive to work. In fact, it's a, for women at least, it seems to be a stimulus for them to be able to work. The thing that stops women from working in the paid economy is that they have unpaid work that's overwhelming them, particularly single moms. Um, and we know that single parents in Canada tend to be moms. When they have that big care responsibility on them, they can't work because there's only a certain amount of time in the day. Um, so they really are limited in the amount of money that they can make in the paid economy. So it's really interesting when you look at it from a gender lens, this UBI, this universal basic income, can support women to actually participate in the paid labor force in a way that without it, they can't as much. And that's reducing gendered poverty. And we know that poverty is a deeply gendered issue in Canada. Well, one of the obstacles here is, is to overcome some of the stereotypes, and, and you've just touched on one that I hear time and time and time again, is I'm not in favor of giving people money for sitting on their duffs and doing nothing. Uh, and that's not what this is all about anyway. This is this is supposed to be a, a, a top-up for these. As a matter of fact, it, some of the women you've just described here, single moms especially, some of them are already working two, sometimes three jobs to try to make ends meet, and, and they're still not making ends meet. Uh, you know, And they say, well, why don't they just get a better job? Why don't they improve themselves? Well, how do you do that when you're already working 14, 15 hours of the day and have to go home and feed the kids and put them to bed and then get back to one of those other jobs? Uh, they're, you know, they're in a hole right now, oftentimes not of their own doing, and, you know, we're not offering them any assistance to get out of it, but this income project gives them hope. Yeah, and, you know, I think that's such an important point. Of course, we want people to be able to achieve their dreams and get better income and find new ways of doing that. One of the main ways of getting a better income is, of course, getting um, higher education access. The problem with higher education is that it's pretty expensive in and of itself. So um, when you think about the ways that people uh, try to increase their income and get better jobs and get into a better position in life so they don't have to get other supports, those things cost money. 
So this kind of approach, it's really interesting because it allows people to get some support to be able to do better and get higher income. But if we just leave folks to be able to do this on their own, well, they won't be able to. As you said, the responsibilities will be overwhelming for them, and they would just pass that point where they can't dig themselves out of the hole. And I think it's really important for us to have that lens, think about it in a little bit bigger of a way, as opposed to just feeding somebody money to just sit sit around. That's not the way that people have been using these supports, um, certainly not in these pilot programs and any supports. I think people um, are always looking for ways to just, just improve their quality of life, not just for them, but for the people who depend on them. It's not that they're living all alone. They have um, folks that they're taking care of. So anyway, I think it's so, so interesting and important for us to take it seriously this time around um, and think about what that means in the pandemic. We, we can't go back to the way things were. We know that for sure. You mentioned cost, and, and, you know, people look at numbers and say, well, you know, we can't afford to do this right now. And that's been the excuse for governments in the past, of course, whenever the subject has come up. Uh, but you touched on something, and I know you guys have done the research on this, I'll tell you, the Women's Foundation. Uh, the cost of not doing it uh, is astronomical. It's probably even more expensive uh, because people that are, are, are stuck in poverty, first of all, they tend not to be as healthy, uh, which means they can, you know, they're, they're – they're costing the healthcare system an awful lot more uh, for those that are crawling around trying to get out of that hole that we just talked about. Oftentimes, uh, they may have to lean on social assistance programs. Well, that comes out of the municipal tax base. So we're paying for this one way or another. We may as well be doing something that's actually going to be beneficial to them. Yeah, you know, it is a matter of pay now or pay later. Um, and I think it's just a very pragmatic, practical approach. I know that folks sometimes look at these issues and say that it's about, um, you know, partisan politics or um, perspectives in, you know, your, your left and right. I, I choose to actually look at it as a practical approach to a problem. Um, and just taking all those arguments aside, we know that poverty costs the government a lot of money in Ontario um, it's been estimated that it costs the government $33 billion to maintain poverty as it is. What is that? Um, if there's a way that we can do things differently so that $33 billion actually is productive and supports people um, and gets rid of the human toll and the trauma that poverty creates, the difficulties, as you said, the health outcomes, um, the mental health outcomes I'm thinking about in particular nowadays, which we're talking a lot about mental health, wouldn't that be a better use of the money? I just see it as a practical approach to a really serious problem that has been here for too long. And what about doing things differently now? I think we're in a very special opportunity, and it's a really tough uh, moment. Yes, I totally see what people are saying, but it is a matter of priorities and, and just um, rethinking the way that we've made things set up right now. I think it's, it's shown that it just has its cracks. And particularly for women and girls, um, you know, what we're concerned at as a foundation, we know that when women and girls are doing well, everybody does well. So they're the ones to start the priority with. They're the ones to invest in now. I think it's really important for us to look at it from that lens as well. Yeah, but let's address that issue of partisanship because you're right. I mean, th those who are dismissive of this will label this as just another, you know, left-wing extremist position. You know, that, that's not what we do. 
I want to remind them that, uh, for instance, the prototype that we used here in Ontario under the previous government was not perfect, but uh, the the architect of that, one of the architects of that was Hugh Siegel, who is a, con- a progressive conservative. I mean, in the Mulroney era, he's a senator now. Uh, but but he understood, even as a conservative, uh, the, the benefit of doing this and, and the cost of not doing this and uh, and was one of the biggest uh, you know salespeople for this whole thing. I, we had Senators Hugel and Siegel on the show a number of times uh, as the, the government, previous government was trying to implement this, talking about exactly what this can do for you and how it can lift people up and take some of the burden off. Because as you say, we're paying for this either way, and I'd rather pay for it in a way that's going to be beneficial to people as opposed to simply putting a Band-Aid on a problem. I, I really appreciate that example. I think that it shows that, you know, th- regardless of the talking points out there, regardless of the way things are framed, we do have to look at this with our, our own eyes and our, our own lens and see what is a practical solution to very practical problems that everybody is facing right now in one way or another. I think a lot of people are hit hard. Um, and I think what we've seen is that women in the pandemic in particular have been hit very hard um, they were the first to lose um, their, their jobs because they tend to be in precarious work. And when job recovery happened shortly thereafter, they didn't benefit from that bounce back up um, in the same way. And now we're seeing people having to choose between paid work and unpaid work and choosing unpaid work because they have just so many care responsibilities with children, with elderly um, family members um, and the like. So I think, what's the practical problem and what's the practical solution? And I do see that this is a a great one to explore. And at the very least, thinking about really changing the way the social infrastructure is set up, investing in the care system, because we do have to take care of folks um, who need it. Um, As you said, it's more expensive to not take care of people and ensure that care work is decent work, that it's not undervalued, underpaid. Um, I think as, as time goes on, It's just becoming clearer and clearer that we have to do things differently. And now that voices are being raised about not getting into fights about these things, but looking at things just very practically and think about what we value. We say we value human rights. Let's value human rights. Let's invest in human rights. We say we value children and young people. Let's invest in children and young people. We say we care about seniors. Let's change the long-term care system because we know that's been really tough, and that's why we're seeing so many deaths. Um, so it's just a matter of us really looking at it practically and finding that the things we say can actually match the things that we invest in. Um, and that's something that we can always ask um, and push our decision makers to do. Regardless of who you vote for, let's ask them, what are you going to do here? And make our voting decisions based on that. I think it's really powerful for us to do that and not get into the debates and not swirl into that, but rather see what's the practical solution for a very practical problem. I know one of the prototypical examples I saw, because we did, as I mentioned, talk to some of the people that were involved in the pilot project here in Hamilton. Uh, one was a lady who was in a similar situation, a single mom uh, with a couple of kids and working two different jobs to try to, to pay the bills and, and raise the family at the same time, uh, enrolled in the program uh, and went back to school. I mean, still worked, but I mean, in the evening, went to, back to, to Mohawk College here in Hamilton. Uh, and was in the process of actually improving herself and getting a, a certificate and getting a better job, a better paying job, uh, with the long-term goal, she said, of getting off the program altogether because I won't need it anymore. Uh, and, and those are the sorts of success stories that we can cultivate with this situation instead of simply keeping people down where they they're, they lose hope. And, you know, this the, the, the strongest thing we've got here, and I, I don't want to sound like I'm running for office here, but the strongest tool we have to try to lift people up is to give them hope, and this is a program that gives them hope. Yeah, I think you're right. And, you know, hope, I think, is really in this society that we live in is very tied with economic opportunity. Sure. Uh, Money opens doors. 
So let's give people money to be able to open those doors for them and think about how are the ways that we can break down the money barriers. The money barrier is something that we create. So I think we can also decrease that barrier and really think about who's hit hardest by that. And I think about women. I think about racialized women. I think about black women and indigenous women. I think about young women. I think about women who are elderly. I, I think about all the different groups of women who are hit in very differential ways and think, hey, if things are better for them, it's going to be better for everyone. So why wouldn't I prioritize them? Why wouldn't I look at and ask them, what will help you? And then go ahead and, and kind of create things around that. So it is a different mentality, I must say. And I, I know that it's tough for us to think differently. But now, hey, now's the time for us to think differently. So I do feel that, yeah. And, and hope and opportunities that go hand in hand, my word. Um, why are we here? I would go back to that. Why are we here? If we're not here to do that, well, we're not doing what we should be doing in, in our society. We're not doing what makes everybody happier and healthier. So um, it's up to us. And I, I do think that uh, there's a lot of willingness and openness now. So let's capitalize on that and keep rolling, running with it as we um, move into, you know, trying to hold our leaders accountable. Andrea, congratulations to uh, to the Canadian Women's Foundation for for taking up the the cross on this one and, and carrying this one. It, it's something that I think we really have to start having a serious discussion about, and uh, it's about time that we put some pressure on our, our federal friends up in Ottawa there to, to give this a long hard look. And they've got time to implement this, and to, and you know if there's any kinks in it, well, fine, you can work those out. Uh, let's stay in touch as this goes on uh, over the next couple of weeks. Appreciate the time today, Andrea. Thanks for having me. And if folks want to learn more, I just encourage you to go to our website at CanadianWomen.org and find out uh, a bunch of information we have about the ways that we can reset normal. Absolutely. Thanks again, Andrea. We'll talk again soon. Okay. Andrea Gunrise, Vice President of Public Engagement with the Canadian Women's Foundation. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.